Now hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they, have, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Matt Jaber. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a great privilege uh, to open God's Word together this morning. I don't remember exactly when it was. I must have been about 25. And I'd sat down to discuss with a trusted friend a relationship that was particularly difficult at the time. And this friend, Bob, asked me, have you forgiven them? Have you truly forgiven them? No one had ever asked me a question quite like that before. I'm not sure I even really understood what forgiveness was. But I knew in my heart that the answer was no. I hadn't forgiven. I had settled for going along to get along. I had merely stuck a band-aid of tolerant avoidance on a gushing wound instead of addressing the actual injury. Uh, perhaps I was waiting for some sort of acknowledgement, an apology, repentance for the pain caused. But regardless, I had not forgiven. I still loved, but I was unconsciously committed to avoiding the issue. And avoidance is a common response to the tiny fractures that come into a relationship but they will not heal on their own. 
If left alone, the break will only fester and get worse. But that's not the only way that we can respond to harm caused. Vengeance is a far more dramatic reaction, taking justice into our own hands and making sure that the other person or people feel the same pain that we feel, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or how about just resentment? We can carry, uh, we can carry around ill will toward our offender with us like a backpack of bricks. We can always hold a good old-fashioned grudge. We might also seek resolution, relying on counselors, mediators, and even the justice system to help us find peace, if that's even possible. And then, of course, there's always forgiveness. Every day, we face countless opportunities for forgiveness, opportunities to grant forgiveness for pain endured, and opportunities to receive forgiveness for the pain that we ourselves have caused. Spouses, roommates, children, Parents, in-laws, siblings, neighbors, colleagues, and the guy who cut you off on 610. Forgiveness, true forgiveness is one of the distinguishing characteristics of Christians. We are a people who have received true forgiveness from the one we've ultimately offended, God. Receiving forgiveness from him is the key to grant it to others. And true forgiveness doesn't come from education, training, or willpower. True forgiveness is derivative from the grace of God. And that's why we find Christians from Corey Ten Boom, a concentration camp survivor, to members of Emmanuel AME in Charleston, responding to inconceivable evil and incalculable pain with genuine, heartfelt forgiveness. How do they do it? And how do we do it? Well, we're continuing our study in the book of Hebrews together, and we find ourselves in the 10th chapter where the topic is true forgiveness. The theme of this entire letter is Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Jewish heroes like Moses and Joshua. And Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. And this has been the emphasis of this longest section of the book that started all the way back in chapter 4 and then ends with our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. And this portion has been highly theological and technical at times, but that's because the author of Hebrews is working hard to convince his Jewish readers to keep following Jesus instead of returning to the rites and rituals of the Old Testament law, as tempting as they might be. And in our passage this morning, he provides yet another reason in his plea. And that's that Jesus offers a better sacrifice that grants true forgiveness. And to make his case, the author reminds us once again of the inadequate sacrifices of the Old Testament before describing how Jesus gives a better offering that grants true forgiveness. Those are our movements. Inadequate sacrifices, a better offering, and true forgiveness. So let's start with the inadequate sacrifices in verse 1 of Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. 
Now, the first readers of this letter were facing temptation to leave Christianity and to return to the Jewish law. This would have been akin to a man leaving his wife because he's happy with the picture of her on his desk. The photograph is meant to point to the real person, not replace her. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were inadequate. This has been a frequent plea of the author as he writes to the Hebrews who were tempted to return to those sacrifices. And in the first four verses of this chapter, the author gives four reasons why. It might seem redundant as we see these reasons come over and over and over again, but repetition is the mother of retention, and the author wants his readers to get it. And the first reason he gives is that the Old Testament sacrifices were shadow without substance. The law is like a shadow. When you see a shadow coming around the corner, you know the person to whom that shadow belongs is close behind. But the shadow is not the person. It is not the substance. It points to the substance. The law is a shadow, and the substance is Christ. In Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul describes the law in another way, as a tutor or a guardian who leads us to Christ so that we might be justified by his grace. The law is good, but it's not enough. We need Jesus and his superior sacrifice. There's a second reason the Old Testament sacrifices were inadequate that we find in this first verse of chapter 10. They were repeated without, they were repeated without remission. <clears throat> The shadow, the law, and the sacrifices it commanded could never make perfect those who draw near and worship. They simply pictured the coming death of Christ. They demonstrated God's grace. They revealed true obedient faith, but they did not provide remission for sins. Only Jesus' blood could do that. And we've seen this over and over and over again in these passages. And this repetition reveals another evidence of the sacrifice's inadequacy that we find in verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? The third inadequacy described here is consciousness without cleansing. The mere fact that sacrifices needed to be offered repeatedly year after year suggests that they had not permanently purified those who had been offered for them. The worshipers were still conscious of their sin and their need for cleansing, but the sacrifices only offered a temporary covering and not perpetual purification. There's a fourth and final reason for that, those inadequacies, the inadequacy listed here, and that is reminder without removal. And it's found in verses 3 and 4. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrifices provided a reminder of sin without actually removing it. Animal blood could not take away sin. And the Day of Atonement provided an annual reminder that their sin remained. Now the inadequacy of these Old Testament sacrifices raises a question. How then were the faithful people of Israel saved from their sin? If they repeated sacrifices without remission of sin, if they had consciousness of their sin without cleansing, if they had a reminder of their sin without it being removed, how did they experience forgiveness? Well, we'll tackle this question in more depth in the coming weeks when we come to chapter 11, the famous Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews. But the short answer is that the saints of the Old Testament trusted in God's provision of a sufficient sacrifice, even if they didn't know what it might look like. 
The sacrifices of the Old Testament prepared the people of Israel to receive Jesus as a substitute who died in their place. And so worshipers who offered sacrifice by faith and not mere ritual or routine were ultimately reckoned by God as righteous. Everyone saved from their sin throughout history has been saved by one means, and that's through the precious blood of Jesus. Either looking forward to the coming Messiah or looking backward on his death and resurrection. And it's to this better offering that Jesus provides that the author now turns in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now these verses are quoted from Psalm 40, a psalm of David. And the author is placing these words from the psalm in the mouth of Christ, the son of David, at his incarnation. And he glosses them as the divine son speaking to his father in heaven, a, a glorious conversation between two members of the Trinity. And the thrust of this section is that God no longer requires the sacrifices of the Old Testament because Jesus, the obedient son, has provided a better offering. Now, it isn't hard to imagine this conversation since God himself is the one who's breathed out all of Scripture with its ultimate meaning in mind when it was first inscribed by the human author. And so the words of Psalm 40 reiterate the first movement of Hebrews 10, the inadequate sacrifices of the Old Testament. Listen again to the way that David and thus the Christ treat the Old Testament sacrifices. He says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. This is a concept that runs throughout the entire Old Testament. When prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Amos and Micah had repeated God's disgust with the ways that the people were offering sacrifices to him. But hadn't God created the sacrificial system? Wasn't it his idea in the first place? How could he be disgusted with sacrifices that he had instructed them to give? Well, what he wanted was faithful, heartfelt acknowledgement of sin and a genuine plea of mercy from his people. And instead, many, if not most, it seems, were just going through the motions. And this clearly angered God. He did not request the repetition of rote ritual. He took no pleasure in their listless, thoughtless, thankless offerings. He desired steadfast love and a contrite heart. But as Christ comes into the world, he draws attention with this quotation to two things, his own obedience and obedience that transforms people. Let's start by focusing on Christ's obedience. In verse 5, he says, A body you have prepared for me. Now, as is his practice throughout the letter, the author is quoting from the Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you were to go back into Psalm 40 and read and compare, you'll notice slight differences in the translations. But the original Hebrew reads, you have given me an open ear. Now, some have taken this to refer not only to an open ear of listening and obeying, but also as a whole in the lobe of the ear, symbolizing the willing obedience of a servant who did not want to be released from his master's service. Either way, both renderings point us to Christ as the willing, obedient servant who lent his ear to the Father and gave his body as a, a better, once-for-all offering to atone for the sins of the people. Christ came to do what generations of Israelites had failed to do. 
And in verse 7, he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And he obeyed the will of his father, not partially, but completely, all the way. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And in con contrast to the standing priests who offered sacrifices repeatedly, day after day and year after year, Christ is now seated because his work is finished. His obedience to the Father required one single sacrifice. A costly sacrifice for sure, but his better offering would actually take away the sins of the people. And he accomplished this through his death on the cross. That's why he cried out, it is finished, as he breathed his last. But the gospel doesn't end with Jesus' death. We don't have a dead Savior. He is very much alive because on the third day, he rose from the dead and he appeared to over 500 people who gave witness to his resurrection before he ascended to heaven, where he's seated in power at the right hand of his Father. And though he is seated, he is actively interceding for us as our great high priest. And he's waiting until the end of this age when his feet will crush his enemies once for all. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. He came as an obedient servant. And the author explains exactly what that will is that he came to do in verse 8. Look back with me there. When he said, that is David and Jesus, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The author is telling his readers that God no longer requires the sacrifices of the Old Testament because Jesus, the obedient son, has provided a better offering. And the offering that he provides is himself as a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And it's better not only because of his genuine obedience to the Father, but because it provides genuine power to transform those who receive it from the inside out. The Father's will in the coming of the Son was that we might be sanctified and perfected through this better offering. The problem for every Israelite who offered sacrifices in accordance with the law was not just the inadequacy of those sacrifices, which pointed to the Messiah. The problem was the condition of their heart. This is what Britt was talking about earlier as we considered confession. It's a problem with every single one of us. Those are the people we read about in the Bible and ourselves as we read it. But when a person believes in the better offering of Jesus, there is a constitutional change. When a person places her trust in the finished work of Christ, she is truly transformed. Followers of Jesus are justified. They're reckoned righteous by faith. And this means that even though we are very guilty, as we sang about this morning, God views us in the court of heaven 
as not guilty. But not on our basis, on the basis of Christ's perfections. And there's a day coming when God will not only look at us and see us in the court of law as righteous, but he will make us perfect. We will be free from sin, body and soul. But until that day, until that day in the future, the Spirit is in the sometimes slow but always steady process of sanctification in our lives. And sanctification is the means by which our, our obedient Savior empowers our obedience. He's making us holy, but we must cooperate. We demonstrate the genuineness of our faith when we choose heartfelt obedience to God that follows the model of our obedient Savior. And so as we consider this example of Jesus, the question is, do you know God's will? I realize that's a loaded question. There's much to know about God's will, but do you know his general revealed will for you as it's given to us in his book in the Bible? And how are you taking in the breathed out word of God each and every day so that you might know that will better? Daily feeding on God's word and not just reading the Bible to check a box, but, but feeding on it, taking it in, applying it is the best way to know what he has to say about righteous living in the world that he's created. And so if this is a struggle for you, my question for you is how might you grow in this crucial discipline? Where are you presently struggling with obedience? And with whom are you inviting into your struggle so that you might experience the refining fire of God's sanctification for his glory? Because we serve an obedient Savior whose spirit has actually transformed our hearts. We're justified by faith in Christ's obedience, not our own. And we will all die struggling with sin, hopefully in an ever-decreasing severity and frequency. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't submit ourselves daily to the Spirit's work. Because our changed hearts are the fruit of Christ's better offering. That's what he produces in us. And the good news is that no matter how sanctified or not we might be at at death, at Christ's return, there is true forgiveness of sins under the new covenant. That's where the author turns in the final movement of this passage, starting in verse 15. He writes, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Now, the author cites these particular verses from Jeremiah 31. We have quotation from Psalm 40 and now from Jeremiah 31. And Jeremiah 31 is one of the clearest promises of the new covenant that we find in the Old Testament. And by quoting these particular verses in this section, the author is now emphasizing two of the many blessings that flow from the new covenant that was inaugurated by Jesus' death. And the first is really just a continuation of the previous point. God writes his law on our hearts and minds. Now, previously under the Old Covenant, the law was external to people. It was written on tablets of stone that were kept in the Ark of Covenant in the Holy of Holies. It was something to look at, something to behold, something to be reminded of. But when Jesus established the New Covenant through the shedding of his own blood, the law of God, his will for us, becomes internal. God writes it on our hearts. He imprints it in our minds. He gives us a new heart, a heart made of flesh and no longer made of stone. And he sends his spirit to indwell every single believer 
And the Spirit then empowers us and strengthens us to obey in a way that was previously totally impossible under the law. And the Spirit testifies to the truth, and then he empowers us to do it. But there's a second blessing that flows from the new covenant that serves as the thrust of this point in this passage, and that is true forgiveness of sins. Verse 17. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Notice the language that God uses as he describes the sins of those who trust in his son. I will remember them no more. He doesn't say, I will forget them. Those two phrases may sound the same, but they're actually quite different. Forgetting is passive. Remembering no more is active. Forgetting is unconscious. We forget without even trying. I actually have to have a tag on my keys so that I can remember where I left them. But when we remember no more, it's a very conscious decision. Forgiveness is choosing not to remember. In Isaiah 43, 25, the Lord says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It isn't that God can't remember our sins because he forgot them. It's that he will not remember them. Forgiveness is remembering no more. And when God chooses not to remember our sins through the sufficient and superior sacrifice of his son, no other sacrifices are needed to be made for sin. The sacrifices under the old covenant law, which were still being offered as this letter was penned and read for the very first time, they become obsolete, unnecessary, meaningless because of Jesus and his once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus offers a better sacrifice that grants true forgiveness. And that forgiveness was costly. It cost God his one and only son. It was costly to Jesus too. He was betrayed by one of his disciples with a kiss. He experienced sham trials and false witnesses with the very intent to destroy him. While those trials proceeded, he watched Peter, one of his closest friends, deny him three times. And as he stood innocent before his own people, he endured their cries, Crucify him! Crucify him! as they led a guilty man, Barabbas, a murderer, an insurrectionist, for crying out loud, go free. Jesus was cursed, mocked, blindfolded, blasphemed, beaten, spit upon, and flogged. And then he was nailed to a cross where he suffered one of the most excruciating means of execution ever conceived. That's where we get the word excruciating. It literally means from the cross. And from that cross, he watched soldiers gamble for his clothing. Passers-by and even the criminals crucified on either side of Jesus hurled insults at him. And although he had done nothing to deserve this treatment, he was the sinless sacrifice, he responded to these humiliating injustices with forgiveness. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That Greek verb, to forgive, means to release, to let go. Forgiveness is a conscious decision to let go of the offender. 
It means to release your offender, to let go of your perceived control over them and to turn them over to the justice of God. That's what Jesus did with the people who wronged him and mistreated him and put him to death. And that's what he has done for every person who has broken his holy law and pled for his mercy. And I hope that includes you because his forgiveness was costly. Jesus' costly forgiveness has many implications for us. And I want us to consider four this morning, starting with the fact that our forgiveness is costly too. One cost is our own sense of justice. We each have an innate sense of justice. What constitutes a righteous judgment in a given situation? But those senses are not always reliable because for each and every one of us, they're marred by the fall. Often our search for justice is an attempt to satisfy our own flawed interests in a given matter. And the only way that we can lay aside our own sense of justice is if we accept and believe that justice has already been accomplished. Because only God has the vision to know true right and wrong. He alone can see the heart of your offender. He's the only one who knows what actually happened to you. And he's the only one who could administer perfect, complete justice in the heavenly court. In Romans 3, Paul tells us that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to demonstrate his justice. Justice has been accomplished for our sin, and for those who reject Christ, know that justice will be delivered in the final judgment. In order for us to forgive others, we must understand and accept God's perfect justice and forgo satisfying our imperfect justice. Forgiveness costs us our sense of justice. It's costly. Forgiveness also costs us our, our own self-righteousness. I'm unlikely to forgive someone else if I don't see my own need of forgiveness. Just think about how our confession of sin works, whether it's your confession throughout the day or the confession that we pray together each and every Sunday. In order to pray sincerely for God's forgiveness, we need to have an accurate view of our sinful selves. We need to see our own guilt and sin, our own lack of conformity to God's perfect and holy standard. And then this allows us to see the sins of others in a different light. Because if we truly do this, we will no longer look down at our offender, but we will look across at our offender because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But if we only see ourselves as important, dignified, honorable, unsullied by common sin, then we are highly unlikely to forgive those who would dare to wrong us. Forgiveness is costly. It costs us our sense of self-righteousness, and that's a good thing. There's a second implication for us, and that's forgiveness means remembering no more. A husband and wife are in a counseling session, and the man complains that her counselor, every time we have an argument, she gets historical. And the counselor says, I think you mean hysterical. And the counselor, the, the, the man says, no. He says, I, I mean historical. She keeps bringing up things from the past every day. Well, clearly, a woman like this is struggling to forgive her husband. Rehearsing past sins in our minds or in actual conversations is a temptation for all of us. But listen to what Pastor Gary Enrig has to say. He says, Forgiveness is ultimately an act of the will, not a stirring of the emotions. 
For a Christ follower, it is a choice to obey God and let it go. This is an inward choice that produces a declaration given, a promise spoken, I forgive you. When I speak these words, I declare that the issue between us is dead and buried. I'm saying that I will not rehearse it, review it, or renew it. When it comes to mind, I will take it to the Lord and to the foot of the cross, not to you. That's what forgiveness is. That's what it looks like. Here's what you might say to that. Yeah, but Matt, you don't know what this person did to me. I could never forgive that person. And that's true. I don't know what they did. But I do know this. Humans are capable of doing unspeakable things to one another. One look at the news reveals that quite clearly. And it's also true that in and of yourself, you can never forgive your offender. And that's the third implication for, for us. Forgiveness is humanly impossible. It is no more possible to forgive those who have wronged us than it is for us to save ourselves. Those of you who are parents uh, understand this as well as anyone. Now, I remember my parents insisting that I apologize to someone in the family after I had wronged them, and, and I would offer an apology through gritted teeth. But a parent has about as much control over a child's heart as we do on our own. Forgiveness is supernatural. It requires a power that comes from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You can't forgive on your own, but because he can, you can. Because you're in Christ and he's in you. If we're to forgive, we need the indwelling power of God's Holy Spirit because forgiveness is humanly impossible. One final word on forgiveness, and that is forgiveness is unilateral. It's one way. It flows in one direction. It's something that requires no discussion with your offender. It requires no response from that person. They may never even know that you've forgiven them. Perhaps the person that you need to forgive isn't even alive anymore. But with God's help, you still need to let go and remember no more. You can forgive someone in a broken relationship. The relationship may stay broken, but you can forgive them. In order for peace and fellowship to be restored, you need true repentance from that person. You need them to acknowledge their sin and have fellowship restored. But forgiveness is one way. And I know this personally. Because after that conversation with my friend Bob all those years ago, God helped me to forgive. I chose to let go. I chose to remember no more. And it was costly. But it changed that difficult relationship in profound ways. Years later, the person came to me and asked for forgiveness. And it was so freeing. Because I was able to say, I forgave you a long time ago. And the only reason I was able to do so was because Jesus' better sacrifice had granted me true forgiveness. And that enabled me to forgive those who have wronged me. Jesus offers a better sacrifice that grants true forgiveness. And one way we show that we understand his forgiveness is to forgive our debtors. Every day we face countless opportunities for forgiveness, and forgiven people forgive others. True forgiveness is a mark of genuine faith in Christ. So just imagine if every 
one of us who's a part of Sojourn Heights, empowered by the Holy Spirit, forgave the people who have wronged us. We just thought of the people that we're holding on to in our minds, those, those rocks that we wear in a backpack, and we chose to remember no more and to let go. Perhaps the person who wronged you is in this room. Forgiveness carries with it the aroma of Christ. The gospel of God's glorious grace would ring throughout this congregation and through this neighborhood and th beyond as we extended his mercy to others if we were to truly forgive those who have wronged us. So let's bow our heads now and let's thank God for his forgiveness and ask for his help as we forgive others. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that before the foundation of time you saw fit to establish a plan that we might be forgiven for our sins, sins that had not yet been committed and yet that you knew would come. And so we thank you for the plan of your son Jesus. We thank you for his obedient sacrifice in our stead. We thank you for the true forgiveness that you give to us through his obedience and faithfulness. And we pray now for our forgiveness, that we would be a people that live this true forgiveness out by forgiving those who have wronged us. Would you help us to do that today by the power your Spirit supplies? In Jesus' name, amen.